0: Dawn of Mantis is brought to you by Redbeard Sound. Redbeard Sound provides music production, audio editing, and live sound engineering, and is where Dawn of Mantis records our podcast. You can find Sam's information on our website, dawnofmantis.com, or at redbeardsound.com. Extra, extra Dawn of Mantis now has a merch store. There are t shirts, long and short sleeve, as well as hoodies. Just go to dawnofmantis.com and click the t shirt link. And while you're there, you can check out our Patreon. All our Patreon tiers have Discord benefit. This means you can join our text chat and even listen to our podcast live as we record it on Tuesday nights. Quiet your mind. Ever since the earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss but two brave uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of mantis.
1: Welcome to Dawn of Mantis, and by the way, something we don't ever say is, it's D-A-W-N. I feel, I feel bad somebody might try to search it up, In Dawn, D-O-N, of Mantis, there's nothing, <laughs> these guys are liars, they don't have a website, they don't have an Instagram, they don't <laughs> have Twitter. They're, they're, it's all built on lies. The name's Dawn. Yes. Dawn of Mantis. Yes. That would be a I funny... I sell used cars. <laughs> yes. It seems like something that Dawn of Mantis would do.
0: A Don, yeah, Dawn, I could see a guy named Dawn selling cars. Like a salesman name. Mm-hmm.
1: How's it going tonight, fellas? Sam, <laughs> it's going good. Sam from Redbeard Sound running the show here.
0: Joe, I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm glad everyone's doing good. Sam of Redbeard Sound and Ivan of Dawn of Mantis. That's and Joe of Dawn of Mantis. Joe of Dawn of Mantis and Sam of Dawn of Mantis. So listen, y'all. Mm-hmm. We're in part six it's of crazy. our Buddy Holly series. For those of you who have stuck with us this long. Thank you for taking the journey with us.
1: And every time we record another episode about Buddy Holly, we're setting our own record higher and higher because this is now like three episodes more than we've spent on any one topic, right? I think we had a three-parter, right? Or a four-parter. A couple years ago, we did a
0: five-part series on Mod Crawford. I stand corrected. The Disappearance of Mod Crawford. That's the, that's the longest okay, we went. Okay, okay. So we're going to beat that by three episodes, though. Excellent, excellent. And go nice. back and listen to our Mod Crawford episode.
1: Yeah, and if you live around Arkansas, it's local. It's like central Arkansas. Yeah, I'm actually going to have to listen to that one because I haven't listened to all that. Yeah, it's... It's a crazy story. Yes. Well, they all are. But that one in particular, uh, if you get mad at the system and you get mad at People getting away with Um, stuff—that's your episode. There you go, Mm -hmm. spoiler. Mm -hmm. But you could have figured that out anyway. (laughs) That's all we do—we tell sad stories. But (laughs) these are actually happy because we know it's going to end badly. But I love to learn about this guy's life. Uh, He's just super likable, and every time you want to, every time you play a clip, of course, there's not very many of his voice, but go back a few episodes our last episode right we had a clip of him uh talking
0: yeah when they were recording take
1: your time yeah and I think then that before that, that the one on the phone where he's getting yeah by the record producer guy yeah um anyway just so likable just to hear his voice i never realized we would hear that and that's awesome
0: that's why we are focusing more on buddy's life
1: and talking voices yes sorry should have said that
0: and you know, uh, like I, I, I don't want to tease it on every episode, but I'm going to say it one more time. We do have a pretty cool surprise coming up for the eighth uh, and final episode on this. But I'll just tease that. I guess. all right, yeah, yeah, I like it. On with the show. All right. Well, now that Buddy was a full fledged, honest to goodness rock star, he wanted to fit the part. He already had a stylish new wardrobe purchased back in New York at Alfred Norton with the guidance of Don and Phil Everly, the Everly brothers. Oh, wow. Who we've really talked about quite a bit, actually. And, we're on, and they play a, a large part in the rest of the story. He also made two visits to his dentist while in Lubbock to get his teeth fixed. It is not hard to tell what stage of Buddy's career he was in by what shape his teeth are in in photographs. Up till now, Buddy had been cursed with some pretty bad chompers, badly gapped and stained by the overly fluorided uh, West Texas water he'd been raised on. Now, though, he had a mouthful of shiny white caps. Oh, wow. For all of Papa Norman's frugality when it came to paying an artist directly, he never seemed to flinch at even the most expensive purchases from Buddy, which I always thought was weird. The guy did not like to hand out cash, but he would write checks for anything Buddy wanted. He just saw something there i guess
1: Uh, yeah but
0: even when even when it was buddy's cash in the bank you know norman petty didn't seem to want to just hand out cash he would even say like the guys would say hey i need 100 bucks for new tires on my car and norman would say well just go down go down and see my friend murray at whatever tire and and i'll just pay for it Hmm. it's like the control or something he just wanted the money to flow through him it seems
1: like Uh, okay i got what you're saying we'll get more into that okay
0: the new wardrobe and dental bills alone totaled nearly $800 and this is in the late 50s. And it would be over $7,000 in today's money. Wow. Not only that, but just before leaving town, Buddy purchased a brand new 1958 Chevy Impala at a price of $3,000,
1: which would be 28 grand today, which is cheap for a new car today, 28 grand. I wonder how many times during the podcast you've thrown out one of those like you give a number and then you say in today's money, I do that. that would be seven that. million dollars. No, <laughs> I think that I think it's really interesting because it we're able to relate today to yesteryear, and that's really awesome. Yeah, I just thought I was, I was thinking. I said here a lot, and hear you say that, and it's I wasn't a it wasn't a complaint. Well, it, no, was, it was is a cool thing to tie in. It's your I, style. Yeah.
0: I just want to remind people that you know when they hear like for the dental work and all that stuff, eight hundred. I don't want him to think, like, let's not. No, this is back in the day when, I don't know, you could go out to eat and watch a movie and spend all night out on a date for, like, probably five bucks.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, 800
0: was a lot. It's a lot You can't get out of
1: the driveway for five bucks now. No, you can't. (laughs) Uh,
0: It was also this time that Buddy adopted a change that would become the most iconic and copied aspect of his appearance. The glasses. Yes, sir. For a while now, certain people had been telling Buddy to ditch his half frame glasses. And get something that
1: would really make a statement, man. I really think it looks silly when people wear those glasses. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> man, Sam and I look at Sam. <laughs> Sam and I both have Buddy Holly glasses. I should have I should have let that set for a little bit longer, <laughs> but I felt so bad as soon as I said it. I can't, I can't commit to that joke.
0: <laughs> We're about to be one less podcaster. No, you're fired. <laughs> JI Allison had told him, if you're going to wear glasses, make it obvious that you're wearing glasses. Phil and Don Everly had echoed the same feeling, telling Buddy if that if he were going to wear glasses, he may as well make a statement out of them. So Buddy finally relented, tossed the half frames he'd been wearing since high school, and had his
1: optician in Lubbock purchase a pair of black-framed horn rims from Mexico. Is that the same thing with the cat-eye contacts? If you're going to wear contacts, make it look Ooh, I, like you're wearing contacts? I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or just the ones where it's like solid black. It is, it, West oh, it
1: is, <laughs> Have you ever tried to not look at somebody? That if you see them in Walmart, like I, I try to look away, but I instantly stare at them again. It's very, I mean, it's it probably goes back to human nature. I mean, you want to make eye contact for nonverbal communication. And yeah, it's very like hard to not look at that person. Yes, it is. Yeah. I don't ever say anything because you never know. I mean, how someone's going to take that. <laughs> I love your eyes. I mean, you, your contacts. It's like, mole, you've got a mole
0: right there on your face, a mole. <laughs> Going back to Austin Powers. Moly moly moly. He has the stick and he's poking <laughs> it. That's the best part. <laughs> with this last detail, Buddy had totally changed from a lanky country boy with bad teeth, half rim frames, and western clothes to the iconic image of Buddy Holly that would go down in history.
1: He metamorphosized.
0: He did, wow. finally. Good, good word. <laughs>
1: yeah, that is a good word.
0: The Crickets return to New York after Christmas to make a televised appearance on Arthur Murray's Dance Party on December 28th. But since his glasses had not arrived yet, Buddy is still in his half frames. This because you can look this up on YouTube. Okay. The Arthur Murray Dance Party had just made their foray into rock and roll. And before the Crickets perform Peggy Sue, Arthur Murray's wife, Catherine, tries to warn the innocent viewers at home about the spectacle they're about to witness. Can we play this? Just look up Buddy Holly Arthur Murray Dance Party. And play it right from the get-go. It's so funny. You know, she speaks in that quasi-English tone that uh, people used to talk in, speak in, in the 50s. It's back when women would wear pearls and ball gowns even just to be on a game show because they were on television. Mm. And they spoke in this weird goddamn accent that no one understands and no one knows why.
2: Now we have some young singers who are creating a great deal of excitement in the Paramount Theater here in New York. Now, if you haven't heard of these young men, then you must be the wrong age because they're rock and roll specialists. Now, no matter what you think of rock and roll, I think you have to keep a nice open mind about what the young people go for. Otherwise, the youngsters won't feel that you understand them. Now, if we're ready for our rock and roll specialists, we have Buddy Holly and the Crickets.
3: Are we at the airport clock? Yes! (laughs) Is Rusty still in the Navy? No. (laughs) No, Aunt Bethany. You know that was the voice of Betty Boop, right? No. No, I did not know that. that. Yeah, yeah, she was the voice of Betty Boop.
1: Oh my God. Christmas vacation. Isn't that crazy? Th- I didn't know that. That's crazy. That is so cool, man. Man, we learned so much on this podcast. So that was Catherine Murray worrying us about the debaucherous spectacle we were about to see. And what song played right after that speech?
0: If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know. Yeah, Peggy hey, Sue. Hey, hey, watch your language. <laughs> Don't sing that filth in here. Yeah, <laughs> devil's music. Talking about off. now you know why I feel blue. What, blue balls? What are you talking <laughs> about, buddy? Buddy Holly? Disgusting. The crickets were at the peak of their success and in full swing at this time. Right after the Arthur Murray dance party appearance, they set off on yet another package tour along with Danny and the Juniors, Paul Anka. Put your
1: head. Oh yeah, on I, the I remember Paul Anka
0: and uh, the Everly Brothers. There okay. we
1: go. Mm-hmm. Dream.
0: Oh God, dreams is song. so beautiful, so beautiful. This tour hit five states in the lower forty-eight and grueling seven in a grueling seventeen-day span. However, near the end of the tour. Buddy finally got uh, to record a song he'd been chomping at the bit to do for a while, and a song that would, uh, for many, end up being the ultimate display of Buddy's vocal abilities and one of my personal favorites, "Rave On." Sam, we got to play just the fr- the opening of "Rave On" is so freaking awesome. Okay, "Rave, Rave On." It, it is one of the best. Maybe I don't know. It's either the best or one of the best, Buddy. Holly I don't know songs if I know it yet. Oh, you'll I'm probably want once I hear it. You'll know it. Okay. It starts out with Buddy's voice. The first thing you hear is Buddy's voice. It's okay. so cool.
3: Cool. Well, little things you say
2: so
0: good, man. Yeah, baby. So that's what I was talking about. That is iconic now. That, oh, what the healthy we... You know, just the way
1: he starts that out. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: It's so cool, man. Yeah, Rayvon is great. That's going to go on our list. Okay. Our companion playlist.
1: Oh, yeah. And I'll mention that again. On Spotify, if you're just tuning in, we do have a companion playlist that we've shared out on the socials. It's also on our website, too. Dawn, D-A-W-N, Of Mantis.com. Yes. Check it out. Well, yeah.
0: Rayvon was written by the same partnership who had penned Oh Boy, and it was meant for another group, but when Buddy heard it, he instantly fell in love. On January 25th, Buddy met with Bob Thiel at Bell Sound Studios in New York and recorded "Rayvon" and another song called That's My Desire. It was the first time in a long time that Buddy had recorded outside of Norman Petty's control, and Petty was not a fan, not surprisingly. He insisted on being there, and according to Thiel, was oozing with jealousy the entire session.
1: You know what I think about these some of these producers? Like, So they record someone earlier in their career that happens to be successful, so they make a bunch of money. Sometimes they do know what's going to sell, right? I mean, they've got a they've got an ear for it, yeah. but some of them can just be lucky that the first few artists they recorded were actually awesome, and they made it. So then all of a sudden they have this inflated view of like, oh, I'm a I'm a hit maker, right? Obviously, we're sitting in a sound studio. That's super important to be able to to get that out there, right? And to get it recorded, yes, to where it sounds good. But it doesn't mean that in every case they're just they know the magic formula, correct? Like, you
0: know, yeah, you like you said. I mean, what if Norman Petty liked to say that that Buddy was his diamond in the rough, but Buddy was Buddy. Extremely
3: Buddy was talented. already Buddy, and yeah, he had, yeah, exactly. like
0: he, you know, Norman. Pe- but you know, having said that, Norman Petty did do a lot. To it wasn't every day back then that you found a guy that would be like, "Come on into my studio, take all the time you need, do whatever sure. you want, and we'll just settle up later." Yeah, but it was just the last. Well, part that
1: wasn't my thing. wasn't an anti Norman Petty, really. It was really just like. I kind of dislike whenever an artist knows the direction they want to go, but then some executive says, "No, yeah, this is the direction you should go." Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah I mean, but sometimes they're right, so I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about that, I guess. Uh, yeah
0: yeah i am too i was gonna rant more about that but we i'll shut up
1: the television debut of buddy in full
0: form occurred the day after the bell sound recording session but would unfortunately be a disappointing one and you guys are gonna know what i'm talking about the crickets had been invited back to perform on ed sullivan on january 26th Uh-oh. however before the show even started buddy and ed had gotten into it about what songs the crickets were going to play One of the songs Buddy wanted to play was Oh Boy, and rightly so, because it was one of their current hits and in the top ten of the charts at the time.
1: What did Ed have to say?
0: (laughs) The stuffy Ed Sullivan objected because he felt the song was too wild. To this, Buddy flat out said, man, if we can't play Oh Boy, we ain't playing at all.
1: Every time I hear it, I just throw a fit and start headbanging and oh, yeah. tearing up my house.
0: Punching your windshield it's, up in your yeah, car. Yeah, it's a it's, great mosh
1: pit song.
3: Oh, <laughs> oh, it,
0: is, it is. It's It's crazy. <laughs> we need to get a, a video of a mosh pit and
1: just overdub. Oh, do, boy, when you're
3: with me, oh, boy, oh, boy, the Wilkins.
1: We'll do that. Um, we'll do that and put that on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on YouTube. <laughs> well, shockingly, Sullivan relented to this
0: and said, okay. Um, but if he wasn't pissed off enough already... Uh, another incident happened. Uh-oh. An act that was slated to go on before the crickets was cut, and they were asked to go on early. Still thinking they had a lot more time, Buddy was on stage holding his guitar when it came time to play, but when Sullivan asked Buddy where his bandmates were, Buddy just kind of laughed and said, no telling. <laughs> 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 joe b and j i were in fact snooping around in the basement at the moment because they thought they had plenty of time and they were just being they were all kids still they're all you know they're all (laughs) either teenagers or early 20s by the time all three crickets had taken the stage sullivan was seething with anger this is why he gave them the mumbling half-hearted announcement welcome buddy holland and his crickets before giving them one last scowl as they started this performance. And you could look it up on YouTube. It's right there. But that wasn't all. And this is the part we've talked about it before on the podcast, but we'll talk about it again. To further exact revenge, he had instructed his sound man to cut Buddy's guitar for their performance. You can tell that Buddy immediately realizes this when they start performing. He futilely attempts to turn up the volume knob on his strap between strums, and thus was born the rowdiest Cricket's performance ever caught on film. To compensate for the low volume, the band played, oh boy, twice as hard and twice as fast as usual, and before letting out one long growling howl, Buddy practically saws his guitar in half on the bridge playing it. It is damn near like you think you're watching the Sex Pistols in
3: 79 or something. It's like that's the moment punk was created. Yeah,
0: Some people say that was part, yeah. Some people have actually said that.
3: Wow. Um, it is so cool to watch. I recommend
0: it, because Buddy... And the, the crowd is yelling. Like, the girls like Aah! are screaming because he's sawing it. And he just goes, Aah! like, this crazy. It was just super cool. Buddy was freaking pissed. And he was making him pay for it.
1: I just like how he wanted to be. He wanted to introduce them with low energy. And he wanted to sabotage them. But it's like, no, you can't. Mm-hmm. You can't stand in the way. Mm-mm. I mean, you tried. But you're just an old man that the the girls aren't listening to.
0: Yeah, buddy. Not buddy, but pal.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I <laughs> Sam almost spit out his canned and dried ginger ale.
0: <laughs> Instead, he played that song so hard, two girls in the two girls in the audience got pregnant. After they were finished, Buddy was fuming over having had a televised performance sabotaged by Sullivan. The Crickets were later asked to appear on Sullivan for a third time, believe it or not, and for way more money. But according to J.I., who heard Buddy on the phone with Ed's people, Buddy replied, Man, you can forget it. You ain't got enough money to pay us to get back on that show. Nice. So good job, Buddy. Nice. The day after the final Ed Sullivan appearance, the boys flew to Honolulu to join Paul Anka and Jerry Lee Lewis for another mini package tour. After playing two full-capacity shows for a total of 10,000 people, Buddy and the guys toured Pearl Harbor and saw some sights on the island before being ushered aboard a Pan Am Constellation for the 6,000-mile journey to Australia for another tour. In those days, even these long journeys were made by prop planes, and they had to stop and refuel halfway. This was to be done at the tiny island of Canton, located between Hawaii and Fiji, In a spooky precursor of things to come, the prop plane developed a problem with one of the engines and barely made it to Canton. The boys were stranded there until the plane was replaced, but they did manage to make it to Sydney in time for the first show. Wow. Although Paul Anka received top billing for his hit, Diane, it was no doubt that the Crickets received more praise from the crowd. Even Jerry Lee Lewis later recalled, and I quote, Buddy was the real star on that one. He just tore him up over there, just drove him wild. And that's coming from Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. An Australian newspaper seems to back up Jerry's statement, calling Buddy the undoubted star of the show. Cool. The Crickets finished their Australian tour and during the journey back, stopped back off at Hawaii for another show at the Kaiser Hotel in Honolulu before finally arriving back home in Lubbock on the 10th of February. Their stay home would be brief, though, because in just a few weeks they were set to tour Florida in another package show along with Jerry Lee Lewis, Bill Haley, the Everly Brothers, and the Royal Teens. But even during this well-deserved break, Buddy, J.I., and Joe B. spent much of their time back in Clovis recording with Norman Petty. These sessions, recorded between February 12th and the 19th, produced a host of future classics like Think It Over, Fool's Paradise, Tell Me How, Well Alright, and Take Your Time, that we heard the beginning of. Yeah. This says there's one for Think It Over. False start and rehearsal, take one. That's the name of it. Could you look that up?
2: Hey, can you go? Pow, 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 pow. that? Yeah, do that right before the first part there. Over what you just
0: said. How amazing
1: is it that we have a recording of them working out a song? It's kind of like the anthology, the Beatles anthology album. Yeah. I mean that that's a treasure, and and these these clips are as well. I yeah. mean that's that's awesome. I didn't know any of this existed,
0: and it's so funny because m- musicians know very well, and I know Sam being a owning your own recording studio, and that I've recorded in studios many times, and Ivan, you too. We all know that language musicians have where you stop, you're like, no. I just hear kind of being like, nah, 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 nah. you know, no, but I, you know, cause when he stops, he's like going, bah, bah, bah. it's like right. all these funny sounds. No, but how about this? Nah,
1: nah, nah. Like right there. Oh yeah. So
0: anyway, I just, it's so
1: cool to hear him say that. It's awesome. He did have, you said something about how he had command and he had the ear and he had the, the vision of what the song should be. And that shows that. That's really amazing.
0: And what's cool is J.I. was just like, here you go. You know? I mean, that's very cool. Let's talk about Britain, shall we? Okay. As popular as Buddy and the Crickets were in America, they were twice as much in Britain. I, I didn't realize this till I read all these books about him. But apparently, like, Buddy Holly was pretty big in the States. He was the shit in Britain. Like, he was it. Bigger than Elvis. Songs that hadn't charted at all in the States were charting in Britain, and any song that was on the charts in the U.S. was higher on the charts in jolly old England. Buddy, J.I., Joe B., Papa Norman, and wife Vi flew across the pond on February 27, 1958 to begin another package tour. This would end up being nothing like the tours they'd experienced back home, though. And not just because they were in another country, that's obvious. But despite Britain's youth being obsessed with this new rock and roll, and despite the fact that within just a few short years it would give us some of the greatest rock and roll bands ever, like the Stones, the Beatles, and Zeppelin, rock was a scarce commodity in Britain in the 50s. Hmm. It had only a single domestic radio station at that time. And although it did play Buddy and the Crickets a lot fans starved for more information on the guys were pretty much left to their imagination this
1: was way before teen beat i guess and tiger beat tiger beat i forgot about tiger, tiger beat. beat yeah that was probably bigger right tiger beat was probably bigger it was yes yeah no editors i mean that's what i heard that's the one i had <laughs> is that
0: devon devon see what was that guy's name I don't know. That actor from the 90s. Oh,
3: Devon Sawa. Devon Sawa, yeah. He was I, the voice of Casper. No, well, I don't know if he was the voice of Casper, but he was definitely Casper in, in human form. I don't know who that is. He was also in uh, Little Giants. He yes. was the oh, quarterback.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, now I do.
3: He was a little heartthrob kid in most of the 90s movies. That's one that my wife has mentioned in particular. I believe he Devin was also
0: Salwa. in Idle Hands. I think that? he was. I, yes. Damn, that's a good reference. Idle Hands. There wasn't music magazines bearing Buddy's likeness at every grocery store or gas station, and the Crickets' albums were even hard to find in the few record stores that existed. In fact, other than the ones who happened to catch them on Ed Sullivan, most fans didn't even know what Buddy looked like. The British establishment's apparent reluctance to embrace rock and roll, or perhaps their not knowing how to embrace it, led to Buddy and the Crickets being the only rock act in a package tour that otherwise could have been pulled right out of the 1940s. There was the Ronnie Keene Orchestra that played big band swing music. Then there was a crooner named Gary Miller, and lastly, the Tanner Sisters. Oh, man, they were hardcore. Can we play a minute of them?
1: Yeah, DJ Stephanie and Michelle. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's great! <laughs> Followed but, by Jesse and, uh, what are they? Rippers. Rippers!
0: If every word I said... Could make you laugh,
1: I'd talk forever. (laughs) Now, one of us didn't name that band. We would have done a lot better. Yeah. Every time I think about that band, it's like Jesse and a bunch of guys that fart the whole time. That's basically. Oh.
3: Would you guys quit farting so we could get this performance underway? <laughs> so this podcast underway? This hey, he really also good. played with the Beach Boys. He did, oh, on stage. They yeah, all did, the whole family. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was but a cameo. He actually did play with the Beach Boys. You're right. In IRL. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: did he really just IRL us? He did. That's okay. We've we got to be with the times, though.
0: Could you play a second of... The Forever. Tanner Sisters, no, Jealous Heart. I just want you to know what was playing. Imagine this playing, and then
1: imagine Buddy and the Crickets coming out, and oh,
0: what? I, I the oh,
1: yeah, it's like a contrasting thing. Yes, I like it. And then the
0: other, like the big band orchestra, may as well have been Lawrence Welk. And now we have a performance from Gary Johnson and his sister. Like the my dad watched Lawrence Welk every night. <laughs>
1: I'll never forget that guy's voice. What? I, it was kind of Italian, like. Well, he was something pizza pie. He kind of had. He had a. No, no, I, I don't know what he was, but it was it was it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: yeah. Jealous heart,
3: oh jealous
2: heart, stop eating.
0: And you see the damage you have done. Yeah. You have They're not pushing any boundaries.
1: Uh, I thought this was going to be a rock concert. <laughs> Jealous heart. Now I'm the only one. Yeah, that's. There you go. That's not similar. That was uh, Jealous Heart by the Tanner Sisters. Very nice. Uh, no, I don't have a good Lawrence Welk. I don't. I, I, you know, I don't know. I. It's been so long. Of course, I wasn't alive when that show was on, but I can't really remember the voice, so I think you're nailing it. Sure. You know what? Fred Armiston does oh, a- Oh, yeah, that's right. He yeah. does a great
0: Lawrence Welk on
1: Saturday Night Live. And it Because it's the, the, the baby little, hand thing. Yes, Kristen Wiig yeah. does the little hands. That's, yeah. And she's trying to pop the bubbles with the little <laughs> hands. Yes.
0: It's one of the best ones ever. After these messages, we'll be right
3: back. Quiet
0: your mind. The tour was a punishing schedule of nearly one straight month of one nighters that had the artists zigzagging all
3: over the country. One nighters? One nighters. <laughs> Ooh. A straight month of have, them. Whew. There might have been some. Wish I was on that tour. <laughs> a straight month of one night stands.
0: You better go get a penicillin shot. Or something. Or something. Anyway, they went through <laughs> London, Bradford, Wolverhampton, Worcester, Liverpool, Birmingham, Doncaster, Wigan, Hull, Nottingham, Bristol, Salisbury, Croydon, Woolwich, Ipswich, and Cardiff, to name a few.
3: I lost you halfway through.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the native West Texans had been right at home in sunny, hot Australia, but England was quite different. The damp, cold dreariness took its toll on Buddy who wrote back home that although he loved the fans and their unbridled enthusiasm, he was pretty much over England and ready to return home. Just before the long-awaited last stop of the tour, which was on March 25th, the boys performed their hit, Maybe Baby, on BBC's Off the Record, although it wouldn't air until three days later when the band had returned to America.
1: You know, Here Comes the Sun was real is really written what you'd think it's about. In England, it's rainy most of the time. Yeah, And one day... George was in the garden, and it was sunny out. His sister told this at the Branson Theater, because somebody asked where that song came from. And he was out in the garden, and the sun came up, and he kind of sang, sang to himself, here comes the sun, doo-doo-doo-doo. Oh, cool. Just like that. So that's how that song was
0: written. That, there's the sun. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it in a day or two.
1: Yeah, see? It kind of went British. Or, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's there neat there. that he hummed the tune, yeah, and then later on he grabbed a guitar and, compose
0: it like neil young said you kind of remember songs oh yeah it's almost like you don't write them it's like you know you ever had that i've had it happen to me just a few times where the song comes to you so fast you're
1: you're almost writing it down you almost are thinking of it faster than you can write it down and then you You and then you say it should go to this It, it sounds like it should go to this chord yeah that doesn't make sense though you know logically right like how could it sound like it should go to that chord Right, it's not, It doesn't exist yet. It's
0: a weird thing, but, man. But
1: does it exist? It's like kind of like the crazy thing, where do ideas come from? I mean, randomly thoughts just jumble up and then an idea is formed, but it's sometimes you just sit around and think, where does an idea really come from? It's kind of a crazy, it can almost get mystical. I won't go there right Ooh. now, but you know, just kind of- okay. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I love that idea. I'm not trying to go woo or anything, but- No, we can go woo. Yeah, but- I'll just leave her out there. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, they did off the record.
0: It aired three days later. Uh, As for their last live show, Buddy, J.I., and Joe B. were wrestling around and goofing off beforehand, and like I said, they were basically kids. Buddy accidentally knocked the caps off his front two teeth when he butted heads with Joe B. This was right before showtime, so the only thing he could do was quickly chew a piece of gum and form it over his front two chompers for a fake grill. That barely lasted
3: through the show. Can you Chicklets. imagine that? Yeah, that's crazy. It's like uh, Dennis the Menace. Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> a great reference. I that love is, it. dude. He comes that he movie. Some of the most of, uh, like obscure references.
3: That's a great movie, by the way. Tastes I'm, like paint. Yeah, talk about the one with Walter Matthau. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. That is great. Yeah, where he breaks his he he uh, is playing with his dentures and mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Breaks the front two teeth and puts some chiclets in there. Yeah. Right? yeah. I, can, I can visualize it. It's amazing. Recommended watching. Dennis the Menace. I want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one.
0: Well, regardless, when Buddy and the Crickets flew back to the States, they had no idea that they had inspired several future British superstars, such as John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards, and Graham Nash, to name a few.
1: Mm, wow.
0: Uh, the Crickets were certainly glad to be back in America, but once back home, the boys only took a couple days rest before hitting the road with yet another... Package tour. I feel like I've said that word like a thousand times on this one. Alan Freed's Big Beat Show this time. This was a six-week-long tour of several eastern and midwest states with fellow acts Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Frankie Lyman, Danny and the Junior, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, the Diamonds, Larry Williams, the Chantels, the Pastels, and Joanne Campbell, among others. Sidebar. I think I spoke about him earlier on another episode, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Mm-hmm. You okay. Did. Okay. Yeah. Well, just then you people have heard it before. I won't do it again. The opening night of the Big Beat Show tour was March 28th at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater and produced one of the most memorable occurrences in rock history. And this is super cool because I didn't know this. You see, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis both had enormous egos and were both demanding to be headliner. After some deliberation, Alan Freed declared that Chuck had more seniority and would receive top billing of the show, leaving Jerry Lee to play next to the last spot before him. I think you guys know where this is going. Yes. As revenge for not getting top bill, towards the end of his set, Jerry Lee Lewis produced a Coke bottle filled with gasoline, doused his piano in it and lit it ablaze before resuming his performance, hammering away at the burning piano as the flames licked his forearms. That's so
1: freaking rock and roll. That was in the biopic, the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic. Yes, it was. But I, was, I always wondered if that was true. It did yeah, happen. That's amazing. It absolutely did happen. Did he really say, follow that? Chuck? He did.
0: After Jerry Lee finished, he walked away from the audience that he left in absolute hysterics. It's awesome. He passed the bewildered Chuck Berry who was just kind of standing there with his wide, you know, his eyes wide open, yeah. and he literally said, follow that, killer, and walked oh, off killer, stage. yeah. So yeah. that actually happened. Man, here's a fun, amazing. Here's a fun sidebar. We haven't done it in several years, but my wife's family used to put on, I think it was almost every year for like seven, eight years, down in this little teeny tiny place over in Rocky Ford. I don't know if you guys even know where that's at. There's a little Rocky Ford community building. They would put on the Rocky Ford review, and it was the whole family would get involved and it was basically like lip syncing to different things.
3: Hmm, That's cool.
0: Yes. Like uh I was Elton John one year singing Benny and the Jets. So I had I did all the costume. My wife's grandmother made a cardboard piano, but it looked like a real ass piano. It was huge. And I was doing, you know, Benny and the Jets. And like, you know, the whole town would show up. Like the community, usually like 70, 80 people would show up. Cool. So one year my wife did Great Balls of Fire as Jerry Lee Lewis and I shit you not it was so cool. At the end of it she whipped out some gas, threw it on the piano and lit that some bitch on fire. And then finished the last minute or two of the song and everybody lost their shit too bad it wasn't is it on video not that i know of not that it was so that's awesome yeah she was like jumping up and banging on the keys with her heels and just it was freaking badass so anyway yeah it was really cool i wish it had been recorded but yeah yeah. i bet you were her groupie that night i can't wait to take you home wait wait why would i be the girl in that situation i can't i would be because she's jerry lee lewis okay call me call me (laughs) josephine indeed The entire Big Beat Tour proved to be the polar opposite of the uneventful proper tour they'd just taken in England. On May 6th, at a show in the Boston Arena, riots broke out, both inside and outside, instigated by racist audience members enraged at seeing black and white performers on the same stage. The gall of these people! We're supposed to be segregated.
1: Yes! Which makes a lot of sense. Of
0: Course! I'm just trying to sit here and eat my can of beans and I know down the road there's black and white performers
1: on the same stage. You know, not far from here in Tulsa, the Tulsa race riots, I've been talking oh. about a lot on the news. Wasn't that in the 30s? But the, crazy thing, the craziest thing about that is two airplanes took off from somewhere and they bombed Black Wall Street. Americans bombed their own people. And because they segregated people were segregated it made it a perfect opportunity for them to do that and that's uh, of course it's vile and all that stuff but isn't that crazy like people were segregated so they
3: were able to bomb
1: they wow I didn't
3: know Yes, yes I believe is it the kind of the Anniversary of that happening yeah, it is. because it, it, is. it was there was like something on TV the other day mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, I watched. I watched a good deal of it. It's on PBS. It was yeah, a, it was June. It was uh, took place on May thirty first and June first of nineteen twenty one. So
1: basically, damn, hundred years ago. Long story short, I mean, everyone should look this up. But basically, there was some kind of thing that happened and they blamed a black individual, and so the white people were really mad. So they. Started like going over and just like it was a riot, you know, busting wow. out windows. They were prominent black citizens that owned hotels and businesses, and
3: that was their way to, I don't know, get back at. Yeah, this says when mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons yeah. by city officials. Yeah, oh, that's comforting. Yes. Yeah, that's another yeah, terrible part. Yeah. Wow,
1: a thousand terrible parts, but it's insane. A- anyway though i'm not trying to be a mood killer but it's important that we uh yeah at least examine that kind of stuff to see how stupid we were at one point
0: and how far we've come i know people like to pretend like we're still in a racist backwater cesspool we it's better now than it's ever been we can say that we can say that yeah we can, yeah, we can. it is better now than it's ever been yeah. uh so anyway yeah but we're talking about in 1958 so it still sucked okay for a Great
1: deal of population. Yes.
0: yes. There's riots started by racist assholes. Um, when Chuck Berry came out, he was pelted with garbage and had to take refuge behind his drummer until help arrived. Chuck Berry, a guy that had more talent in his right pinky than any of these pricks ever would possess in their lives. Freaking awesome-ass Chuck Berry. They threw garbage at him. That just,
1: I don't know, this makes me upset. Jealousy, among a lot of other things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Wait, we're supposed to be superior. And you're... <laughs> better looking than us and you can play guitar and sing and well,
1: that's not right right i don't know
0: well several fights broke out one person was stabbed many arrests were made and alan freed was charged with both inciting a riot and conspiring to overthrow the government although the charges were later dropped i don't know how he's trying to overthrow the government but fearing a repeat incident the last three shows in new york connecticut and new jersey were canceled wow As I said earlier, up until now, the crickets had pretty much always been under the thumb and microscope of Norman Petty. But during the Big Beat Show tour, Papa Norman had stayed home in Clovis, and the boys were free to smoke, drink, and cuss all they wanted. Wow. This no doubt helped lead to the realization that it may not have been totally fair to send all their money back to Norman, as they had always done. Mm. Sure, he was quick to whip out the checkbook anytime they needed something, from a new suit to a new car, But at that point, for Norman, the money wasn't the issue. It was control. Control. He was fine to lavish upon the boys whatever they asked for, as long as they had to ask. Yes. So not only were the crickets growing tired of Papa Norman's forced rules of no smoking, drinking, or cursing, they had also begun to feel like they needed more control over their own money.
1: Damn it, I'm tired of this no cussing thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This resulted in the first major act of rebellion against Norman Petty. The boys had uncharacteristically pocketed most of their earnings during the tour. So as they made their way back home early due to the canceled shows, Buddy hatched an idea. Let's stop off in Dallas, buy three new Harleys, and ride the final 300 miles back to Lubbock like in Marlon Brando's gang in the movie The Wild Ones. All right. J.I. and Joe B. said, screw it. And the group, indeed, stopped off at the Harley-Davidson motorcycle shop in Dallas. However, the salesman there was rude and didn't take the boys seriously because he didn't think they had enough money to afford an oil change, let alone new bikes. The pretty woman syndrome. Exactly. So the Crickets took a cab from the Harley dealership over to Ray Miller's Triumph dealership where they bought an Ariel Cyclone for Buddy, a Triumph trophy for J.I., and a Triumph Thunderbird for Joe B. All to the tune of three thousand dollars, which of course is close to thirty thousand dollars today.
1: Please tell me they went back by the Harley place. I wish they would. Revved, you know,
0: to show that shitstick that he could have made a huge commission.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, they did have money.
1: Yeah. Dang. Dang it. Now I'm going to be fired if anyone learns this.
0: <laughs> anyway. They also completed the ensemble with matching jeans, denim jackets, and jockey hats. You can still find the picture of the boys posing with their new bikes on the internet today and a home video of them toying around with the new bikes taken when they got back. It's really cool. It's like these little leather biker hats, and Buddy's got one of those on and sunglasses, and you can see him and and J.I. riding the bikes around, and then they're like pretending to Zorro sword fight. Oh, wow. It's a home movie in their front yard. Very cool. Cool.
1: Yeah. I'm glad they had some fun with their money. Me too. Yep. About time. Sending yeah. Back to stuffy-ass Papa Norman.
0: Yeah. Although they had to ride almost the entire journey home through a torrential downpour that they did not count on. It's not quite like the movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> Never rained on the movie. <laughs> they finally arrived back in Lubbock, soaking wet and tired a few hours later. Now you'd think that having one of the biggest groups, or being one of the biggest groups of music, who had multiple songs on the charts... You know, they'd been on Ed Sullivan, toured across the world. You'd think having that group come from your hometown would be an enormous sense of pride for mm-hmm. Lubbock. Yeah. When Jerry Lee Lewis returned home to Faraday, Louisiana, he was given a parade, an official welcome home from the mayor, and presented with the key to the city. Wow. However, when the Crickets returned to Lubbock, not a single damn mention was made, not even in both local papers.
1: It was Crickets. <laughs> Crickets on the crickets, isn't that weird? That is weird. I wonder why. I don't know. I don't have an answer. Oh yeah, I don't have an answer. I it's didn't just find the an right answer. people weren't in charge, right? You know, it's like somebody in that the other community for J. Lee Lewis spearheaded that. Yeah, they just didn't have that person. I guess.
0: I guess not. It's so weird because Lubbock was such a mu- a music centered community. Yeah, but maybe it was more like of the stuffier older guys that. That would yeah, rather a probably. country
1: artist have? I don't know. Yeah, don't know. probably. That's probably what it was. He probably nailed it.
0: Well, as confusing and frustrating as that was, uh, it no doubt had its advantages as well. The The boys were able to forget about the rigors of stardom and just be three goofy Texas kids when they were there. So you didn't find anything that they were disappointed about that? They were a little bit bummed. You know, they kind of were hoping for... Anybody, I think, would help. Sure. for something oh, yeah. like that. But, uh, but then again, like I just said, they kind of liked it because... They really could do whatever they wanted yeah. around town, and nobody bothered them. It was super weird.
1: And they were kids, so kids are more resilient, I would think, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Buddy ran around town with old pals like Bob Montgomery and went hunting and fishing with his brothers, just like old times. The Holly family did get quite a scare when Buddy received a letter from the draft board on May 28th, but thanks to his terrible vision and the stomach issue we talked about, uh, there was not a chance in hell that he was going to go to the Army, so obviously that didn't happen. However, knowing what fate had in store a mere eight months down the road, I want to remind you now that we are we have eight months left
1: of Buddy's life that we're talking about.
0: Had Buddy been drafted, he may
1: have lived. I was just thinking of that. Yeah. Or maybe not. Or maybe not. Very <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. So, what year was this now? Well, it was 59. Okay. Or 58. Late
0: 58. So it would be a good chance that, I mean, he definitely wouldn't have ended up where he did. That's true. Like always, music was never far from Buddy's mind or priorities. Not even two weeks after arriving home, he and the Crickets were back in Norman's studio to cut three new tracks, Lonesome Tears, Heartbeat, and It's So Easy. Along with uh, Joe B. and J.I. were a vocal group called The Roses, who had provided the backing vocals on several Cricket songs and a brand new addition, a tall, slow-spoken swing guitarist from Oklahoma named Tommy Alsop. Just really quick, I got to meet Tommy Allsup, uh not too long before he died at the casino. Was it
3: Buffalo Run?
0: I don't think, no. It wasn't Buffalo River Run.
3: Riverbend. It was
0: Riverbend, I believe. So we were playing that casino. This is what's nuts. And I, if I've told this story before, I'm going to tell it again super quick. Um, James Dunham, our guitarist, he's been on the podcast many times. His father was there, and there was a tall, old man in a nice suit and a white cowboy hat sitting next to his dad you know and during one of the breaks i come down and i sit by his dad and his dad uh kind of i can't remember he didn't introduce him like as his full name because i didn't know who the guy was till after he walked away really i wish i would have known at the time but i just kind (laughs) of went and sat by him james's dad gets up and it's just me and him and we just talk about music for a little bit really yeah he said you know he said that uh he really liked that one song we played and and then we just talked uh i don't even remember really what about is what's crazy we just Dude, that's amazing we talked for a few minutes i went back up to play by the next break he was gone and then like it was no big deal james's dad said that uh that gentleman you were talking to was he played with buddy holly and i was like what kiss your kiss your mother with that mouth what <laughs> He said, yeah, that was Tommy Alsup. I've known him for years. Wow. And I just, I wanted to like run through the casino and
1: try to find, you know what I mean? But I, so I got to meet yeah Tommy Alsup. That's pretty cool in itself, you know, that you didn't know. That's kind of, that's real neat for some reason. I think that is.
0: Uh, yeah. You know, you're right. Cause if I had known, it would have been like when I hung out with Theo Vaughn and I just would have been kind of a bumbling idiot. Starstruck. Yeah. But instead, like, no, I probably was just totally
1: chill and just whatever conversation we had. You probably connect, like, yeah, like you were saying, you probably connected with him more just because you didn't, you weren't starstruck. And it's so cool that he,
0: first thing, didn't say, like, if I was him the first time I met anybody, I'd be like, hey, I played with Buddy Holly.
1: He never (laughs) even mentioned it. You might a little bit, but then eventually.
0: I think like 50 years later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you did that, I don't know. I hey, guess what? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, yeah, I got to meet the guy. So anyway,
1: I wish That's I could cool. go back and get my That's picture. That's a cool story. Yeah. yeah. Well, the picture thing would have been awesome. Yeah.
0: So yeah, Tommy, speaking of Tommy, he had a lead style quite different from Buddy's, but it actually brought a new dynamic to the cricket sound and buddy conceded the lead guitar spot to him happily see buddy was never selfish or egotistical and was always on the lookout for new talent he also gave away about as many songs as he wrote in fact two future classics love's made a full of you and wishing were written by buddy and his old partner bob montgomery around this time but once they were finished buddy thought them better suited to his old pals phil and don everly Hmm. The Everly Brothers loved the songs, however, they ultimately were unable to record them due to political issues with their primary songwriters, thus buddy kept them.
1: Wow. So much bureaucratic stuff. I
0: know uh, this is a different genre and way later, but George Strait had a primary songwriter. Yes. Uh, Dean Dillon, I'm 99% looks sure. Looks like the
1: Bernie, Bernie. what's his name? Bernie Taupin yeah. and Elton John. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, so a lot of times a, a, an artist and a
1: songwriter would team up and they would just, you
0: know, Write for each other. And that's bizarre
1: him. to me that the lyrics were all written first on a lot of those Elton Johns. Yeah. Isn't that... That would be very tough, wouldn't it? To me, that's weird. I handed a sheet with lyrics and write some music to this. I just think that would be incredibly difficult. Just a few weeks after the Clovis
0: sessions, Buddy was back in New York at the Decca studio located in the Pythium, Pythium? building on West 50th Street. This is when he recorded early in the morning which is more of an old school soul gospel sounding song than anything else. Uh, If no one has heard it, uh, you're going to need me early in the morning. Oh, yeah. One of these days. I thought it was early in the morning. I was thinking that. Strap shoes on my feet. Yeah, Buddy wrote that. Although this song didn't have a chance in hell of being top 40 at the time, and everyone was well aware of that, it would become a future gem in Buddy's repertoire. But for Buddy, the most significant thing to happen on that visit to New York, and in the rest of his short life, was yet to come, and we'll get to that
3: on part seven. I can't believe there's only two episodes left. I know this has
0: been a long journey, y'all, but I hope I hope you've had a good time and learned a lot about Buddy, and tuned
1: out the ridiculous sidebars. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned a ton. Well, this was a good one. It was a good one. In that case, thanks for listening and talk to you next time.
2: Let me tell you about some fellas I know named Ivan, Sam, and Joe. They got themselves a little podcast, you know. They talk about everything under the sun that they find interesting, spooky, or fun. They sure ain't trying to impress no one made to too much time on your answers Take a little listen to the dawn of my teeth. they talk about killers, monsters and cults French mates from hell, disappeared folks Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes but They try to make every story extra nice by adding their own ginger spice, not one time or two, but thrice. The remedy to too much time on you ends is take a little listen to the dawn of mantis Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell. The world's as weird as hell. But hell, even if nobody listened, you know they'd maintain a fine disposition. Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission. The remedy to too much time on your ends is take a little listen to the dawn of man Medita, too much time on your answers Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti